I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises and dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. In today's conversation, I speak with Carolyn Miles, the former president and CEO of Save the Children. A self-described optimist, Carolyn shares with us where the humanitarian system has made progress and her reflections on how we can find better ways to support people caught in crisis. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Kirsten. It is great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So, Carolyn, you were the former CEO of Save the Children. What was the mission and mandate of that organization and kind of what was your personal goal in engaging in that leadership role, taking it on? Sure. Well, Save the Children is an international global organization that focuses on children, as you would expect, and really works in three areas health, so really working on the basic survival for kids and basic health issues in education. And the focus there is on primary education, making sure every child actually gets a basic education up to the sixth grade. And then protection of kids, which is where the emergency response piece comes in in a lot of ways. So that's what Save the Children's all about. Works in 120 countries, reaches about 150 million children every year. And my reason for joining Save the Children was relatively simple. I thought there was probably some way I could make a difference. I had seen lots and lots of poverty when I was living in Asia, and I thought this is really completely unfair that kids don't have the opportunities they deserve. And I thought maybe I could do something about that. I'm so excited to have you be the individual that's actually helping us launch this podcast Because the first time that I saw you speak was in a chamber at the United Nations and panelist after panelist had just kind of finished telling us about the failures in Syria, challenges being faced in Yemen, where global humanitarian aid was falling short. And then the moderator turned to you and you kind of like leaned into the microphone. And I remember you kind of started speaking what felt like from the heart about These instances where you had seen local communities and the international aid sector coming together, new technologies that were emerging that you were excited about. And I just remember taking this kind of deep breath and feeling this sense of, yes, there is still so much that we can do and kind of really feeling invigorated by your remarks. And so multiple years later... I was hoping you could kind of share with our audience a little bit about, you know, where you have seen progress in humanitarian aid. I do think that being in this field, you do have to be somewhat of an optimist because I think otherwise it can get extremely, extremely difficult. And you really do see progress. I tell people this all the time that I'm really lucky to have been in the sector for more than 20 years. And over that 20 years, things like the infant mortality rate was cut in half, right? The maternal mortality rate was cut in half. The number of girls going to school rose by millions, literally millions. So 20 years is not a very long time, but yet you could see that progress. And I saw tons of evidence. I look at things like Bangladesh. If you look at the changes, Bangladesh is an area of the world that is very prone to cyclones, huge cyclones, and that has been a common occurrence in Bangladesh over many years. And, you know, if you look back to 1970, there was a particularly horrific cyclone there that killed somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people, right? A half a million people were killed in that one storm. 
But what that did was it started this whole chain of events, which is why I think this example is is such a good one. It started this chain of events, prompting things like the formation of the World Meteorological Organization of the UN and the use of technology to actually try to predict these kinds of cyclones. It also kicked off and it took a few more years and a few more storms, unfortunately, to get this to happen. But it kicked off this huge program that the government of Bangladesh sponsored, which was all about building cyclone shelters. More importantly, it was about engaging tens of thousands of volunteers in Bangladesh to prepare for cyclones and to be able to know where to go and what to do. And I remember very vividly going to one of these drills in Bangladesh early in my career at Save the Children, which was literally people with fire hoses pretending there was a cyclone and everybody knowing what their job was and everybody knowing what to do. And literally, that has saved thousands and thousands of lives. You know, the last big cyclone in Bangladesh, it still killed a lot of people. There was one in 2007 that killed 3,500 people. There was one later in 2015, I think it was. But it was in the hundreds, not in the hundreds of thousands of people. So to me, that is just a great example of how we actually can make tons of progress. And there's all sorts of things in that example. There's preparedness, there's local leadership, there's technology, there's all kinds of things that really have happened over that period of time that have literally saved in Bangladesh, as one example, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives. I love that example. And, you know, I remember there was a few years ago also that World Bank study that kind of showed that disaster risk reduction saves between four and seven dollars for every one dollar invested. So it's clear that the right investments in global humanitarian aid response and preparedness can make a massive difference. But that statistic that I just gave, there's such limited actual hard data and evidence that's collected and shown on where and how humanitarian aid works. Why do you think that is? Why does this sector not invest more in trying to calculate and understand where progress is being made? Yeah, I think it's hard. I know that something that certainly came into play during the time I was at Save the Children and is still very much a part of what they do is these after action reviews. I think the challenge is you know, it is a sector that really generally is very low resourced. You never have enough resources at the end of these kinds of things to do all the things that you should be doing to prepare for the next thing. I think we always kind of stop one step short and we do the after action reviews and we make the recommendations inside our agencies and maybe even collectively as a response network and body. But you know, they don't then get funding behind them to actually do the things that maybe are recommended in that after action review. The only time that anybody ever actually paid attention to Save the Children was when there was a huge disaster. That's the only time. The rest of the time you were fighting to get somebody to pay attention to your girl's education program or your child mortality, even though children were dying in an emergency every single day. It wasn't until you had this giant cyclone or 
a wildfire or something that just hits people and comes up on their screens that they actually paid attention. And so it's hard to keep that attention on emergencies, post-emergency to get anybody to care about what you should do the next time. And do you think now kind of what you're talking about, like with an emergency coming on someone's screen? I mean, one of the concerns I have now is that there's so much coming onto people's screens, right? That students are constantly, they call it doom scrolling, right? Going through crisis after crisis after crisis. And so that's kind of one of the reasons we're launching this podcast is I see it in my students, this feeling of despair and compassion collapse. There's a lot of terms for it, empathy fatigue. And that's where I wonder, would it be helpful to kind of share some places where aid is making a difference or where people can connect in in using a different emotional frame than one of despair or feeling sorry for and instead feeling kind of motivated and empowered and compassion in an active sense for individuals. But What I've noticed in trying to look through and find positive examples is that the majority of the ones you find then are kind of organizations, almost PR, being forced to talk about promoting something that they've been doing that works. And so that's where I'm wondering Mm. for you, what I really appreciated about when I saw you speak at the UN, and also I've seen you speak in other places, you talked about the Paris Climate Agreement, you talk about a new technology in Nepal, you weren't just talking about Save the Children has delivered X amount of, you know, I guess I'm, I'm still wondering, like, is that a hard thing to do? Like when you give positive messages, as the CEO of a large organization, are you ever worried you're going to be accused? accused of either falling into this PR self-promotion or organizational promotion trap in a world where there is obviously massive despair or that you're being accused of kind of glossing over challenges or being almost Pollyanna-ish, you know, when it comes to crisis. How did you square that? Part of it of what I've learned, I think, over the time that I've been involved in this sector is that putting more power into the hands of individuals and particularly in the hands of local people has made a huge difference. Really focusing on local communities and local leadership and communities and actually giving them some resources, which is always the challenge, right? Organizations want to keep those resources so they have them to do what they're going to do. The second thing I would say to your point about fatigue of people responding is a lot of the really interesting things that I think are happening now are actually happening from the business sector side. And they are putting the power in the hands of consumers. So two examples, Airbnb, who has formed now something called Airbnb.org, which came out of this, I think it happened after Sandy, actually, in the US, that people needed housing and responders needed housing. I think it actually first started as a way for emergency responders to get housing. Airbnb started doing this, and then they found that actually there was among their hosts, because again, they're a platform that people use to rent out their own homes, right? So it's their hosts that are giving the homes. It's the individual people. So they basically found that people were willing to do this for emergency responders and then for refugees. They've housed 20,000 Afghan refugees, for example, in the US. And so they formed something called Airbnb.org. And they said, we're going to have this organization that this is what they're going to do. They're going to help our hosts. We're going to help our hosts be able to give their houses for emergency responders, for refugees, for short-term temporary needs from domestic violence. I mean, all these different things. So that's, you know, one example. 
Another example is the work that Google is doing on the mapping of wildfires. So this is another example. And they're doing this globally where they're being able to now actually form this using satellite imagery. They give you a boundary of the wildfire. And so this is important information, not only for the responders, super important for the responders to know exactly where those boundaries are at any time, but also, of course, for homeowners and for local responders and for local organizations that are trying to make sure they're ahead of such things as wildfires, right? So that they're going to be able to provide the support that they need to be able to provide when they need to provide it. Those are just two examples, but I think business has a, and now that I'm teaching at a business school, I think I'm more attuned to this. Businesses really do have a bigger role to play than I think they ever had. This is a piece of what they think is important for them as organizations to do. And young people are pushing them to do that. You're now back at Darden at business school, right at your alma mater teaching. Can you think back to when you were in business school and what you and your fellow students kind of felt about engagement in these types of issues versus what students now feel their responsibility or motivation is? I mean, have you seen this trajectory of young people in business school saying this? I want this to be part of my career. Right? This is central. This isn't kind of just a side philanthropy issue. It is totally different. I'm very optimistic about that. You know, when I was at Darden, it was a long time ago, when I was there, it was about shareholder capitalism. And your job really was to maximize shareholder wealth. And that has completely changed. And now you're really talking about stakeholder, maximizing stakeholder value, which involves your customers, your employees, your regulators, the communities that you work in. There is a lot more interest from today's students, both undergrad and graduate students, I think, to go to firms where they actually believe that that company does care about their impact on the world and that they actually are very actively looking at that. And the whole response to humanitarian disasters is completely different. Here, maybe we switch a little bit to, you know, a current crisis, which is the Ukraine. You would have never 30 years ago, you would have never had businesses coming out and saying anything about the war in Ukraine, let alone taking all the actions that they are to try to minimize the, you know, maximize the impact for the Ukrainians and minimize the impact of their business, of their good business for Russia. It just wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have pulled out of Russia. They wouldn't have done these kinds of activities in the Ukraine. It's a totally different landscape, but it's the expectation now. That was one of the things that always brought me hope is that over the last two decades, we've started to kind of, let's say, broaden the tent of who gets to engage in humanitarian crisis, realizing that humanitarian crisis is not synonymous with emergency or short term. When you came in in to save the children, I'm also wondering from the private sector, you know, were there some people like, she's not a true humanitarian because she comes from the (laughs) private sector, you know, like you can't make money off of Christ. Like, so like where, how, how did you kind of see that feel those feelings change? I think it's completely changed. And I would say it kind of went through a couple of different phases. Certainly when I first came into the sector in the late nineties, there was a lot of skepticism about business, a lot of skepticism that if you're out to make money and sell pharmaceuticals or consumer goods or whatever it is, you couldn't possibly have these other interests at heart. Then there was this phase of kind of working with corporations, but it was really about just getting money. 
It was really about, can we get this company to support our programs in Ethiopia because they have some interest in selling their products there and maybe they'll give us money for our education programs or whatever. So very kind of disconnected and really about funding. And then I think things really did start to shift in the 2000s, mid 2000s, really looking at partnership where you were really trying to take what does a company do well and what can they really do in terms of whether it's an emergency response or whether it's a longer term development program and what can they add. I had another question for you kind of based on this one critique that I often often face in teaching and talking about global humanitarian aid is, you know, I have this large class of around 200 students and one day I was giving a lecture about accountability and talking about some of the efforts that the humanitarian system has made over the years to increase accountability. And there was this one student and she was sitting somewhere in the middle and I could just see her kind of shaking her head no. The almost felt felt like for the entire hour, right? And kind of giving me this look and it, you know, it was very unsettling. So afterwards I found her and I said, you know, I could tell that my lecture was upsetting. Like, why don't you come to my office and let's talk about it. And so she came into my office and she sat down And I said, I would love to hear your thoughts on the lecture. And she said, you know, I just, I don't buy it. I think the entire international humanitarian system needs to be dismantled. And I said, really? And I said, well, I still think there is a lot of changes that need to happen. But I'm also, you know, think that there is a place for global humanitarian aid. And she said, well, do you just believe that? Because if you didn't, your whole life would be a total waste. I remember kind of being... Surprised, but you know, the thought sticks with me, right? In terms of like, am I seeing things through the wrong set of glasses, right? Because this is kind of where my lived experience has been. But I know that a lot of my students feel very, very, not only negative against the private sector, but then also negative against the public sector, against organizations like Save the Children, the United Nations, Doctors Without Borders, ICRC, the mainstream organizations. So how do you answer those questions? How do you answer this concept of some people call it decolonizing aid, but still, I would say, fighting for the global humanitarian imperative? You know, you you told us a little bit before about engaging more locally. But I, I, I just wonder, is there still a case to be made for global, large scale, international humanitarian organizations? And what, what is that case? Yeah, I do think there's a case. But I do think that probably one of the most important things that that global international system has to do is take the skills sets that they have and make sure that those are getting transferred and translated down to local organizations to really building those capacities closer to the ground. One of the things at Save the Children, we always tried to kind of push the responsibility and the decision making as close to children as we could get, because I think that's where you get the most power out of those decisions. So I think that goes for working with local partners, too. I think that's super, super important. Having said that, there are some things that I think large-scale global organizations, UN and large NGOs, etc., can really do. And I think they have the capacity to look across many, many, many different examples and see where the really difficult things that need to change can change. Have you always been an optimist? Like, where did that come from for you? Did it grow during your tenure at Save the Children or did it decline? Yeah. So I think I have always been an optimist. I'm definitely a glass half full person for sure. 
I come to the work with that. I think it's also really important as a leader, I think, to be an optimist for your teams. I've been in a room where the person kind of who was in charge was kind of like, oh, they weren't real optimistic. It doesn't give you a lot of confidence that what you're doing and you're about to embark on is worth doing. And so I think it's really important for leaders not to be Pollyannish, not to be like, oh my gosh, this will be all great and everything will be fine. I mean, not that, but to feel like we're going to embark in something and we're going to make a difference. That That's kind of at the core of what Save the Children is about. It's about making a positive difference for children. And if you don't feel like you're able to do that, it's going to be tough to lead an organization like that. And to your point, I mean, I think I became more of an optimist when I was there because I did see the evidence that things were changing. And you have to keep talking to people about that because it's easy to get lost in your little space and kind of be like, is any of this matter? Does it does like, is this, has I done anything that's going to make any difference here today? So as a leader, you also have to be able to step back and kind of frame things for people and talk to them about what you've seen and how it's changed and why it does make a difference. And I saw tons of that. When I was at and Soda. I saw this one quote that you once gave. You're, you said, in 1990, you had 12 million kids who died of preventable diseases. And now you have under 6 million. That's 25 years. And it's that's now in under our, five. That's in our lifetime. Way. Yeah, it's now under five. And then you said, that's in our lifetime. So why not be ambitious and say, if we can do that in 25 years, then we can save the last 6 million in 15 years. I really appreciate those types of messages. Yeah. And that was when we set our 2030 goals for child survival. And we said, we want to see that number get to zero. What was important, I think, about setting those goals for us was we were very specific about the things that we would then do to contribute to that goal. And every year we measure those things. And I do think that that is also super important when it comes to the humanitarian side is being able to talk about the measurements, not just the number of people that you reach, which was always kind of our top level, but really, are you doing things like building in that resilience for the next time? And what have you left behind in terms of this response that's going to be able to actually be used the next time around? Like those are things that can be measured and we've got to get better at that. Is that the kind of advice that you would give? I mean, you're now out of this leadership role. So you can look back. Is there any advice that you would give to humanitarian leaders or policymakers that are still in those roles that you now kind of see with some hindsight? Yeah, I do think it's about telling that story of progress. I think that's really, really important. The point that I've made a couple times now about pushing that responsibility down to the local level, I think we have to get better at really saying very specifically what's going to be left behind on this after this emergency that's going to help the next time it happens, because most of these are recurring things that happen on and on. And my last question is, I've noticed you have a tattoo of the world on your wrist. <laughs> yes, I do. Could you share with us um, the story behind that? Sure. So the story behind this is that I have a daughter and her name is Molly. And on her 18th birthday, what she wanted more than anything was for both of us to get tattoos. So I said, okay, we will do that. And why did you choose to the world as your tattoo? Well, I guess to me, I think one of the things that I've really learned over these many years is that 
it's so important to think of yourself in the bigger context of things. And this kind of reminds me that I'm in a, a little tiny place over here on this map, and there is the whole world of people. It's a good reminder, I think. Keeps me grounded. Thank you so much, Carolyn Miles. It's been so incredible talking to you. Next time on the podcast, we're continuing to go beyond leadership and are honored to have with us Peter Maurer, the outgoing president of the International Committee for the Red Cross. Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.